All right. This morning, we're going to be considering this encounter. Right? The sermon will be better. <laughs> I hope. Uh, this morning, we're going to be considering this encounter between Jesus and a Gentile woman, a Canaanite. Older versions called her the Syrophoenician woman because she lived in the area of Tyre and Sidon on the Mediterranean coast, which was the homeland of the Phoenicians. We're going to talk more about them in a bit. It's a part of uh, Syria at the time, modern-day Lebanon. Before you get to the text, I have to do a few things to help us understand that uh, what's happening in this text is something typical for what happens throughout the gospel records, particularly in Matthew. Uh, Something we have to uh, understand so that we don't miss the point of this text and others like it. Something like this kind of conversation, the gospel writers are presenting to the reader, to the hearer, to us, confronting us really with something contrary to expectation. I think quite a few people reading this passage would see this is a pretty good example of that. That's not the Jesus we expected, contrary to expectation. Something in the text that's meant to make us go, huh, what's up with that? Our tendency, I think, is to try and get Jesus off the hook, okay? Let's figure to explain this some way so he doesn't sound as bad as it sounds. Uh, And we'll do that somewhat, but that's really the point to make us ask that question. What's up with this? What's going on? Matthew does this a lot with other sorts of things. I mean, he starts out right away. I mean, who is it that comes to see Jesus? It's Magi. And of course, the Magi. But they're, I think we've heard about that recently, the shepherds. I mean, you know, when, when you think about the shepherds coming, we go, shepherds? Really? Shepherds? Or Blessed are those who mourn, or blessed are the meek, not those who laugh. (laughs) Blessed are those who win, or even in Luke's gospel, the Samaritan, the parable of the good Samaritan. I mean, that's become today, you know, the idea of somebody's a Samaritan means, well, they're a good guy, right? Well, he he stopped to help the guy by the side of the road because he's kind of a good Samaritan. All of those kind of things, they they look at us and we go, well, yeah, of course. Of course, the Magi, of course, shepherds. Obviously, what could be more normal than, you know, small boys dressed up in their mother's bathrobes and, uh, you know, standing around with uh, fake beards on as uh, shepherds and Magi? You know, we've seen that become so familiar to us. We don't question it. That's pretty normal. As I already said, the Samaritan. Here's Here's the problem. The problem is, is that we become so familiar with these accounts and so familiar with these pictures that we don't say, what's up with that? We say, yes, of course, that makes sense. Of course, uh, what else would it be? It seems right. And, and because of that, we miss something, sort of like a joke, which you've heard before, which is pretty lame, <laughs> like a... Leg named Smith, okay? See what I did there? See how I, that's all. We're so familiar with these accounts. But then we see an encounter like this. This is why I chose it, because this is one of those that leaves us with that. What's up with that? I just, I was talking this morning. He treats this woman, apparently. So we're going to, we're going to look at this and ask, hey, what's up with that? He's he's meeting a Gentile woman, a Canaanite woman, a Syrophoenician woman. What's up with that? Now, you may have 
never thought of this before, but Jesus was very good at meeting people he didn't know. We're not usually very good at that. You, you know, we meet somebody we don't know. It's kind of awkward and everything. And you try to make common ground with them. You know, so you're trying to figure out what to say to this person. And you, you know, you say, oh, I can tell you like garlic. I like that too. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's not really good, Okay. Uh, or, you know, the, the, the kinds of, you know, the ways that we try to make uh, uh, connections like that. Jesus was very good at this. In the Gospels, we read about a number of notable interactions that he had. You can think of them. Think of uh, Nicodemus in John chapter 3, or the woman at Sychar. The woman at Sychar. So I, I had a test as a seminary student. And uh, where was the woman at the well? And I couldn't remember it and got it wrong on the on the test. And I... I objected to this to the professor. I said, everybody knows that is the woman at the well. And he says, right, but where was it? I said, when am I ever going to need to know that? <laughs> Whenever I use that as an illustration, obviously. Uh, or the rich young ruler, which is found in all three of the synoptic gospels. And you need all three in order to get rich young ruler, okay? And uh, he met a leper in John chapter 8, a Roman centurion. We could think of more. It seems so obvious and so normal, doesn't it? That he's meeting these people. But once again, there's a bit of a surprise here. The people that he meets. Uh, Nicodemus, well, he was a Pharisee. And he, although he came around later, Jesus didn't get along with Pharisees real well. A leper, Roman centurion. It's like all of these, every one of these, if we stop and think about it, is sort of contrary to expectation. It's like that's not a, a, a meeting you would expect to hear about, sort of like I remember a pastor telling us, Pastor John telling us the story about how he met Robert Schuler on an airplane one time, and I thought, boy, I would like to have been there, <laughs> okay? I'm sure he didn't give us everything about that particular conversation, but that's like, that's contrary to expectation. All of that to say is Jesus, when he, when he has these conversations with people, there's, there's something going on with a Canaanite woman, and we think, what on earth? Uh, and then we find him in the district, look at verse 21 again, in the district of Tyre and Sidon. It's, what is he doing there? And even the account of this woman in the context of Matthew's gospel is like, what's this doing here? This seems out of place. Bear with me because I'm going to do some reading because I'm quoting from um, a sermon by S. Lewis Johnson Jr. And he describes, he says this, the Canaanite woman, whose story is recorded for us here, is one of those secondary figures of the New Testament. I thought about that secondary figure. It's not even a tertiary figure. And then I tried to figure out what comes after that. Quaternary, quinary, centenary, septenary, octenary, nonary, denary. Okay, just in case you wanted to know. Okay, that goes all the way through. And Twelve is duodenary. So you can just say, you know, kind of a duodenary, okay? And all of that, the point is, is that she's not Peter, James, John, one of the apostles, not the Virgin Mary. She's, she's a nobody. In fact, she is less than a nobody. This is a poor, unknown Gentile, I repeat, Canaanite woman. As someone said, she is like one of those figures on the margins of a Rembrandt painting. It wouldn't be a good painting. She has become one of the unforgettables of the New Testament, for one reason, the only other person who gets the same approbation for her faith, the only other person like that in the New Testament is, ironically, a Roman 
centurion who gets the same statement, oh, I have not seen so great a faith, not in Israel. The Roman centurion is a man who lived in the land. The Canaanite women lived outside of the land. Both were Gentiles. They had one thing in common. Jesus praised them for their faith. It's remarkable that the most, the two most outstanding instances of faith in the New Testament were Gentiles. This is even more surprising in Matthew's gospel because Matthew is the most Jewish of all of the gospels. This woman that's highlighted. Well, why is that? Well, again, it's related to the fact that it's contrary to expectation. Here's another theme that goes through the gospels, and this is it. Basically, I put it this way. Who gets it and who doesn't get it? We should be looking for who gets it and who doesn't get it. Again, contrary to expectation. The ones who get it, again, are usually Gentiles, surprisingly. In fact, even the disciples don't quite get it until the end. So, and, and who gets it? A Pharisee in John 3? No. Again, later he does, but no. The Samaritan woman? Yes. A rich Jewish ruler? No. Think of this one, a leper in John 8. Think of this. A leper. I know, we, we think of that particular one. I thought about preaching on that one because think about this. This guy's been a leper. He just healed him. He touched him. A leper. Well, again, who gets it and who doesn't get it? That's, that's key to this particular account. And that's a key, too, just to give you a preview of why Jesus has this exchange with this woman the way he does. He's not trying to be harsh or mean. We're going to say that a number of times because I think some people look at this text and say, that looks harsh. By the way, I've learned, I've learned that you know, over the years, that you can say something really cutting to people or about them. As long as you say, that might have been harsh. You're off the hook, okay? <laughs> that might have been harsh. <laughs> Look at that guy's shirt. Oh, that might be harsh. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, my wife tells me, no, that doesn't really work, but I, I think it might. In any case, why is this here? Once again, in Matthew 15, Jesus has just had a pretty direct confrontation with the Pharisees. And in this exchange, he's offended them. Uh, he's bested them in an argument and he thinks it's probably a good time to get out of town. In fact, he doesn't just get out of town. He gets out of the country. This is the only time in the entire ministry of Jesus that he actually travels outside of Jewish territory. Now, we know he went down to Egypt, but that wasn't his ministry. So this is the only time. He's traveling into Gentile lands. This is another little clue. When Jesus was going through Samaria and met the woman at the well, another conversation with a woman, surprisingly, uh, it said he must go through Samaria. I think we can apply that sort of you know, gospel text logic to this one. Why does he do this? Well, because he needs What he does, however, as we said, it's a rather odd conversation. So we're going to look at this conversation here. We're going to look at this. There's no real outline. And as I said, we're just going to take it as it flows. And there are 13 points. And I want you to pay particular attention to the 13 points. I'll mention them. I, don't, I hope you can take them down. Somebody asked me if I wanted to put up PowerPoint slides, and I don't, know, I don't use PowerPoint slides usually. Power corrupts, and PowerPoint corrupts absolutely. 
all I have is a guy and his Bible, okay? This is, this is it. So, but I'll try to give you the outline. And I worked hard on the outline, so I want you to follow these, you know, because they're, it's kind of clever, maybe too clever, but nevertheless. <laughs> you'll kind of see as we get going. So the first, first point is Jesus undertakes a strate- an unanticipated, there it is, unanticipated but strategic on Exorinson in Greek means to withdraw, but to withdraw in the face of danger or to draw in, a, in order to avoid danger. He wasn't driven out. Uh, he wasn't running away. It was a strategic move. It was tactical. Uh, this is Jesus' fourth strategic withdrawal from con- uh, conflict in the Gospel of Matthew. And he's going to do this again in chapter 16 with the disciples and go to Caesarea Philippi. He just deemed it politic to move to the adjoining territory for a time. I think the lesson here is there are good Good times where it's better to withdraw rather than confront. The confrontation's going to happen, but this isn't the time. So he, he goes to the land, a, a safe respite from the Pharisees. As I said, we're going to see to meet this woman. So uh, second point, an unexpected but significant setting. Okay, So I won't do this all the time. An unanticipated but strategic withdrawal, an unexpected but significant setting You'll get, the, you'll get the flow here. He went to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, again, this is, as I've noted, this is surprising. Uh, Tyre and Sidon, well, again, he goes there because it's outside of the land. There are only Gentiles there. And when he sent his disciples out, he specifically said in Matthew chapter 10, do not go to the way of the Gentiles. So you've got to know something significant is up here. His mission, and it's going to come up in verse 24 again, is to the nation of Israel. But here he is in a Gentile, even a Canaanite country. Now, a little background on Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were, as I said, coastal cities, uh, very well known for the 25 miles away. Sidon was about 50 miles north of Galilee, as we already said on the coast. They've been mentioned in chapter 11, verse 22, and are mentioned from time to time in the Old Testament as well. As Phoenician cities, the Phoenicians were seafaring traders. The Phoenicians went everywhere around the whole Mediterranean basin. In fact, there's some evidence that they went clear outside the Mediterranean and traded with uh, peoples on the western coast of Africa. Some have even suggested they made it as far as, uh, as Britain. Um, quite, quite adept at sailing and trading. They were the middlemen of the ancient world. They didn't manufacture anything. They would just pick things up and go from here and, and trading back and forth. They're the ones that picked up the grain in Egypt and took it to uh, Ionia or Greece or further on, or, and then took manufacture items back from their home ports. This is interesting. They were actually cosmopolitan and more tolerant of outsiders. In any case, all of these city-states... Uh, controlled land well inside. So when it says he went to the district of Tyre and Sidon, we probably should not think he went clear where those cities are. So he wouldn't have to travel that far. But he went to these peoples for this reason, because he was going to have this particular encounter. Look at verse 22. And a Canaanite woman from that region, see district region again, came out and began to cry out saying... We'll stop there. 
This is the third point, an unlikely but interesting individual. Now, there are several things I want to note here. Think about this. Look at what she says. Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. And then she mentions how her daughter's reputation must have spread far enough that, they were, that she was aware of who he was. I think sometimes we have the idea that Jesus wasn't very well known outside of the, his disciples or even the, the land there, but apparently uh, he was. And it's also very interesting in telling what she actually says when she comes. Well, she comes and she cries out. Uh, something made her cry out to Jesus. Being a woman, a Gentile, this is, this is again, in the culture at the time, this is pretty bold. Uh, if she did have something about those two things kind of working against each other, if she did know they had a reputation for being uh, an important person, someone that she identifies as, as the son of David, and yet here she is, a Gentile woman, feels enough that she feels like she can just go and talk to him. I know him and start talking to Pastor John. You know, if you did, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be met with some people that would treat you more like a sacked quarterback than a, a you know, a plain, plaintive uh, individual. So uh, again, but nevertheless, that, that, that's how she knows she's breaking cultural, ethnic protocols this is the beginning of seeing the fact that she was really desperate. She was crying out. That, that she comes and cries out. And, and again, the most interesting thing about it is she calls him Lord and Son of David. Now, that is, that's, that's very interesting. But you know what? You, you don't just run with that. Somebody comes, you know, to talk to me about the Lord, and they start, you know, you can have the jargon and not really have the substance, not really know what that means. You got to be real careful. As a pastor, I can't tell you how many times, especially in a small inner city church, I had people knocking on the door, asking for a handout, this and that and the other thing. And, uh, and again, they would know all the kinds of things to say. These people are really slick, you know, uh, and uh, I had to be real careful in terms of, uh, you know, letting anybody know, you know, to, you know, didn't, trying to help them in any way because they have a network of things. Uh, I had a friend of mine that was watching our house, the parsonage one time, and some people came and asked him for gas money. We're traveling through, we need gas. So he gave them $50 for gas money. I got to tell you, for the next six months, you know, knock, knock, is this the church that gives gas money? <laughs> you know, so... That's, that's the first step toward trying to understand Jesus' response here. This sounds real good. Be wise and understand that needs to be tested. For Matthew, however, he's using this language in terms of his gospel, what he wants to get across very strategically because this is what Matthew is trying to get across. He is the Lord. He is the son of David. He is the Davidic king. He is the Messiah. This is, this is Matthew all the time. And Matthew does this a lot. The gospel writers do this a lot. They put the truth into the mouth of people who either don't really believe it or understand what they're talking about. So that's why we can't just run with this. Matthew wants us to know he really is the son of David. That's a messianic title. 
Two blind men are going to be crawling out. You know, I love that story too. Two blind men crawling out to Jesus. Son of David, son of David. And he turns and asks them, what do you want? Hello, we're blind. (laughs) Matthew, he wants us to see, we know the truth. But get this, does she know the truth of what she's saying? As I say, that's got to be tested. So we're, we're on a f- first step toward understanding this, this passage. Christ, the way that that even is expressed means she was agitated. She spoke in an excitable way. The imperfect tense indicates she kept doing it over and over. We, can, we need to see her desperation here. And before we move on, I want to stop and, and think about her desperation. What did she say? She said... Have mercy on me. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. That's the fourth point, an unfortunate but serious malady. My daughter is demon-possessed. Now, uh, we use it. We we often think about how, how God is merciful. We maybe even sing about it. But do you understand? Think about this. Mercy is a quality that is only expressed in the context of misery. If, you, if, if, if you're not miserable, you don't cry out for mercy. I think we use it like many of our, again, Christian jargon. We, we say those kinds of things way too easy. And I think a lot of people will not admit their misery. They don't cry out for mercy because they won't admit their misery. Some of you who grew up in a Christian home may not really sense this as much. Not growing up in a Christian home, I, I learned by sad experience. Living in a sinful world is miserable. It's a terrible condition. It's a desperate condition. But a lot of people don't want to admit that. A lot of people would rather, would, would rather paper that over, would rather, you know, figure it out for themselves. This is what Facebook is for. To make your life look a lot better than it actually is, right? We put stuff on there that makes everybody else jealous. When I do my, I was doing a lot of internationally travel a few years ago. I love putting all my pictures from all over the world and particularly highlighting all of my high school friends that are still stuck back in Davenport, Iowa. <laughs> Look how my life is now, guys. Uh, I had to repent of that, by the way. <laughs> but nevertheless, that's the point. We, we, if you don't know the mercy, cry, a cry for mercy is deeply humbling. It's abject self-effacing. Mercy is the cry of a condemned man. Thomas Cromwell, who was an advisor to Henry VIII, a a loyal advisor, sometimes, you know, a crooked loyal advisor, served him very well, crossed Henry VIII one time, and Henry VIII sent him to the tower and then eventually to have his head removed. And his last words were, Sovereign, have mercy, have mercy. That's... That's abject. Her cry was, have mercy on me. But look, it's not for herself. It's her daughter who is cruelly demon-possessed. That word cruelly is just the typical word for 
bad in Greek, but in this context, and the parent can kind of know this, right? Give it to me, and I'll grit my teeth and get through it. Afflict my sons. That is four times, ten times more miserable. Miserable, demon afflicted. Now, it's interesting that Matthew doesn't get into that too much here. He just says, we don't even know exactly what this might have meant. Because I think, again, the, the emphasis isn't on the daughter's problem. The emphasis here is on the, the mother's misery because of the daughter's problem. But the mother, one author says, making it plain that the daughter is in a pitiable, pitiable plight. So she cries out, have mercy on me. Begins to be difficult for people. Verse 23, this is number five of the 13 points. The fifth, an unpromising but mild rebuff. Verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. Again, that's, that's surprising. This is so uncharacteristically Jesus, isn't it? In the face of someone who has demonstrated that kind of, of, of confession of misery, this cry of mercy, to, to hear exactly what the condition was with her daughter, she's cruelly demon-possessed, for him to simply say nothing, we go, what's up with that? Matthew emphasizes his silence by saying Jesus did not answer a word. You ever see this uh, commercial on TV, you know, how to write without using words you don't need and eliminate things? You didn't need this. You didn't give, us a, give her an answer. That would have been a word. Why? Why did Jesus, why didn't, why did, why is he just turning his back on her? Well, sorry, but we're going to come back to that later. <laughs> just to let you know, at least this wasn't a flat refusal. He just, just basically ignored her. This is a way, by the way, that Matthew, the author, is building up tension in the story to keep us interested, to, look, to make us look for the real point. So number six, the sixth point that Jesus or that is found here. Jesus is confronted with an unwelcome but unsympathetic entreaty, not for the woman, but from the disciples. Look at the rest of verse 23. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, stop there. What do you want the disciples to say? It's just as unexpected with the disciples. Implore Jesus. Can you, can you deal with her misery? Can you do something about her daughter? Can you? No. What did the disciples do? This is just typical disciples, isn't it? I mean, some, sometimes when you, you, you in the text, you want to, what's up with you guys? Okay. Yeah. Right. They're, they're just like, it, it, it's just, it, this is the problem, you know? And his disciples came and implored him. That's a strong term. That's almost the same level of plea. I mean, they're begging him to get rid of her. Send her away. Because she she keeps shouting at us. (laughs) She's annoying. Can you get rid of her? No. That's... Now, some commentators, again, people that try to sort of retrieve the situation... Well, what they were really saying is, Jesus, do what she wants, you know, give her what she wants, send her away. No, it's, they're, they're not even thinking about that. that they want removed. Get rid of this woman. She bothers us. 
She keeps shouting, and again, it's emphasized, at us. You, know, you, you kind of wonder when she was imploring Jesus, where were they at? They were probably over there. You know how that is. Somebody starts, you know, haranguing somebody else. What do you do? You know, you, you kind of step aside so uh, you can know, handle that. But no, they, when she came to them, they was like, he, she's haranguing us. She's shouting at us. Get rid of her. Now, listen carefully. The, clearly, there is a contrast to Jesus' reaction rather than something that's in concert with Jesus' reaction. In other words, this is put here to say, you think Jesus is responding like the disciple, but no, no. It's, this is a, they didn't want to be put upon They didn't want to be inconvenienced or bothered or irritated. Listen, Jesus is motivated. His responses are motivated by principle. They want to get rid of her. Jesus doesn't do that. He he wants to keep this encounter going, as difficult as it might be for us to read and even for her to deal with at the moment. And that principle is, this is number seven, an unsociable but principled dismissal, verse 24. And by the way, the dismissal, this verse 24, you got to understand, is directed to the disciples, not to the woman. Okay? Understand that. So he's directing this to the disciples. I, he, verse 24, he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. All right? His mission is to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, to to bring salvation to the nation. I always think of the nation with a capital N, the nation, the nation of Israel. His mission needed to be defined by what is needful for the nation. Okay, so in in a way, he's he's not going to accede to their demand to have her sent away, What he's saying is, you guys got to remember what my mission is. What's his mission? His mission is to Israel. He is to be the Messiah of the nation. And I'll just give you a little clue. The Messiah of the nation was there to fulfill the promises that God had made to the patriarchs, to the fathers, to Abraham. And get this, Jesus knows that when his mission to that that then will lead to a blessing for all the nations. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I know that seems rather complicated. It's a, a biblical theology. But this, this, why would he say this? Well, he's saying this again because he, he, his miracles were to confirm who he was, the Messiah. He's not here as a wonder worker, in other words. He's not just here to sort of, you know, set up shop and heal everybody that comes along, although he does that amazingly. But that's the point. Again, go back to the point that she used the title Son of David. Does that mean she gets it? Back to my previous sort of point, does that mean she gets it? Does she understand that he is the Son of David? She uses the right language? Well, I guess that's the point. You got to sort of figure this out. Where's she coming from? And so, disciples' sake... And for the reader's sake, Jesus, that's why he's making the statement. Understand the order, the arrangement of my ministry. I'm coming to the nation of Israel. 
and then it will go out to the nations. But this comes first, then that. Eight, number eight. Jesus is faced with an unyielding but respectful appeal. Look at verse 25. One of the things that every commentator notes about this woman is her persistence. Okay, that'd be another sort of lesson to get from this. This is somebody that's very persistent. Always, as a pastor, I was real careful to tell, to be, you know, in teaching my congregation about persistence, okay? Okay, you know, persistence is really good with God, you know. Uh, you know, goes a long way with him. We still didn't really know where she's coming from. Uh, and... Not really sure about where that, you know, what level of faith we even want to call that is, is happening there. Because he didn't answer her right away, and because she is persistent, again, she came and began to bow down before him. That's, that's a key part of this encounter. She came and to bow down before him. Bowing down is an act of worship. One author says, Matthew likely intends the reader to view this as an act of worship in the strongest sense of the word. The picture that here is that she didn't come down, just come down and do, you know, a nice little, uh, you know, oriental bow or anything like that. This was, she, she was down. She was, she was begging again. And she pleads, Lord, help me. This is the third time she's addressed him as Lord. Lord, help me. Who deserves worship? Only God. Who accepts, in the New Testament, who accepts worship? Only God. Either Father or Christ. Now, this would be the point to an imponderable here. If he wasn't God and she bowed down, then we might have expected, okay, over the top, okay, don't be doing that. Don't be worshiping me. He accepts it. He accepts it. And, of course, what does that demonstrate? I think pretty obviously, what does that demonstrate? Moved from, I, this guy could help me. This is the son of David I've heard about. This, this person I know has worked wonders. But she's down worshiping him. Whatever it was, I mean, this is not real clear in the text, but whatever it was her level of understanding and faith when she was crying out mercy, pleading for her daughter, is pretty clear now. She's moved to another deeper expression. This is worship. Don't you think Jesus was sort of drawing that out? Do you think that was the point? I think so. Uh, but... Uh, number nine, Jesus makes an unpromising but principled reply. This is probably the one where most people go, Ugh. you know, the fact that he didn't say anything going on. Well, maybe it would help before I even read it if I would tell you that he's probably quoting a proverb. It's a common proverb, okay? It's not something that Jesus is, you know, reacting from himself. 
James Montgomery Boyce notes that Jesus' statements were politically incorrect. I love commentators that make understatements like that. Well, this might have been politically incorrect. You think? Look at what he says. And he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I think he just called this woman a dog. Okay. The children are obviously the children of Israel. They enjoy a special covenant relationship with God. But what do we do with this reference to the dogs? Another commentator, I love this. The language describing the I think so. I think that's, it's not politically correct. Now, let me unpack this a little bit for you. Uh, it's true that Jew, the Jews often refer to the Gentiles as dogs. Okay, but that word for dog is the generic term for dog. It's kunan. It means a cur. It means uh, it's, it's a wild dog, uh, feral, we might say. Dogs in the ancient world were lowly, dirty, dangerous animals. They ran in packs. They carried diseases. They were generally a nuisance and, uh, or worse. Jesus uses a term here, though. It's related to that term. It's kunarios, not kunan, but kunarios, which is a diminutive for dogs and really means little dogs. You know, like everybody living in canyon country, Okay. <laughs> All of their dogs are that way. You know, I see some guy out jogging with his little dog than you are to keep up with you, okay? You know, it's, it's not like dogs. I mean, I, I grew up in, a, in Iowa, not on a farm, but near farmland, and we had dogs, okay? All right? <laughs> nice, big, friendly dogs. Uh, but these are little dogs, uh, little pups. Household pets. And you know they're household pets because the woman picks up on this in verse 27 and says speaks of their masters. So this isn't these wild dogs. This isn't these, these curs. This, it's not that. Jesus uses a term that indicates that these are really are like household pets or some, some animal that you would keep around. So that's, that's, that helps a little bit, I suppose. Uh, you're, 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 not a, you're not a wild dog. You're just a, you're just a chihuahua, okay? Yeah. And... Uh, Maybe, it's maybe something there, you know, that's another one of those dogs. I, if you've got a chihuahua, I'm sorry, but it's just like, you know, if you have a chihuahua, it, does, it helps, but it doesn't. Another commentator, Leon Morris, says, we don't feed pets until the children have been fed. You're supposed to get, this is, this is again, something might, might be imaginary. I don't think it is. Reading the original text, you're supposed to get the tone here is not as harsh as it sounds. There it is. I've said it. It's not as harsh as it sounds. That, it's not that harsh. He wasn't, he wasn't doing that. It was probably the tone that a parent uses with a child to make them think about what they're asking. Okay, we're going to have dinner in about half an hour. You really want that cookie right now? You know, it's sort of a way of putting things off. In fact, one commentator says, I don't think this is entirely wrong, there's slightly affectionate tone here. Whatever it was, it wasn't so off-putting that it just made the woman give up. It leaves. This is beautiful. I love this. This is an unanticipated but insightful rejoinder. Look at verse 27. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Again, I, I love this. 
Not in the sense that I want people to do this for me, but I'm putting myself, I think as we should, in the place of this woman and the attitude that demonstrates genuine faith in Jesus. I know my place. I understand what I'm asking for. I realize, maybe she heard that statement about the mission being to the Jews first. I understand, but that still leaves room for mercy and compassion and help. Requesting Jesus' mercy that as a dog might beg for table scraps. By the way, those of you who have dogs, if you haven't picked it up there, I have a cat, okay? But when you have dogs around, what do they do while you're eating? Unless you train them, okay? They're there all the time, salivating, looking at you, <laughs> making you feel guilty, okay? With, with the cat, comes and looks at me, and I go, you wouldn't like it, and she leaves, okay? <laughs> all right? Done here, okay? There, as a dog might beg for table scraps. What a picture. Notice what she's doing. Okay, I'll, I'll take it. What do you mean I'm a dog? What kind of savior? No, no, it's like, okay, I'm a dog. But dogs get fed. Dogs get, they get something. One, one commentator says she answers with wit. She, listen, she didn't think her difficulties, her trial, her position in society entitled her to anything. She did not play the victim card. I deserve better. No, no. I know what I I know who I am. She doesn't appeal to the the idea that I don't deserve this. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. I love this. I'm going to read all of a quotation from a commentator, RVG Tasker. He wrote about her faith. She does not stay to argue that her claims are as good as anyone else's. She does not discuss whether Jew is better than Gentile or Gentile is as good as a Jew. She does not, listen, she does not, which God works out his divine purpose. Can I read that again? Think about our cultural moment that we're in. Let me read that one again. She does not dispute the justice of the mysterious ways of God by which he works out his divine purpose, choosing one race and rejecting another. All she knows is that her daughter is grievously tormented, that she needs supernatural help, and that there is here a person, Lord and son of David, who is able to give her that help. And she is confident that even if she is not entitled to sit down as a guest at the Messiah's table, this Gentile dog that she is, yet at least may still be allowed to receive a crumb of the uncovenanted mercies of God. This is saying, every one of you Gentiles... Gentiles, unless there's, you can correct me. None of us had any claims on the plan of God. None. Not just because of the fact that we're sinners. Not just because of the fact that we're unrighteous in and of ourselves. But salvation is of the Jews. 
It's because God promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David promises about a savior to come. And we get in on those promises. Read Romans 11. We're grafted in. We get in on those promises. All you Gentiles, no human deserved it. But God made a plan for his nation that includes Gentiles in terms of salvation. And you and I are just like this woman. James Montgomery Boyce again quickly said, look at her faith. It's, everything is there. Her knowledge is there. Her heart appeal is there. Her commitment is there. All of the three things you need in order to have faith. I got to keep moving. Number 11, an undeserved but evocative commendation, verse 28. Look at what Jesus says. And I want to ask you, wouldn't you love Jesus to say this to you? And Jesus said to her, oh, woman, your faith is great. Oh, woman, your faith is great. This is the confirmation she finally wants. By the way, this is the Jesus we've been waiting for, right? This is him. He's there. And everything he did and how he handled this brought her to this place, brought us to see that she is in this place. That's why it's there. In other words, going back to what I said at the very first understanding of Jesus' identity and power and mission, and she takes her place among the other notable Gentiles in Matthew's gospel. Why does Jesus do this? Again, two reasons. Salvation is of the Jews. And every Gentile who comes to faith in Christ needs to realize it's never been about us. It's us from the foundation of the world, to be sure. It's us as those who have been chosen in Christ from the foundation of the world. It's us certainly that way. But the plan, as it works out, is he is he's a Jew. He said, I would love when I was at a prison ministry. I used to tell people I was in prison for six years. Actually, I had a prison ministry for six years. And the chaplain of the prison there had a plaque on his wall that said, my boss is not the United States government. My boss is a Jewish carpenter. I love that. He didn't commit himself to a nominal faith or acquiesce too quickly to her appeal. It was a trial of her faith. He wanted her to dig deep into her heart and draw that out, as difficult as that might have been for her at the time and difficult for us to read, but there it is. And then number 12, he offers an unrestricted but marvelous assurance. Verse 28 again, it shall be done for you as you wish. <laughs> Note, she didn't just get crumbs from the table. And then number 13, Jesus delivers an undelayed but amazing provision. The last part of verse 28, and her daughter was healed at once, just like all of his other healings, it, at once. Done, she was healed once and for all. It was accomplished, this miracle was accomplished for another at the intercession of a loved one and accomplished at a distance. Praise God that you recognized your misery and you cried out, have mercy on me. Lord, help me. And he did exactly that. It was done for you just as you wished. If you have not put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, if you have not come to him with a faith like this, then whether you sense it, feel it, or 
recognize that you are miserable. You know, it's, you know what happiness is? Happiness is not being miserable anymore. And you can have that if you will do exactly what this woman did. Lord, mercy. Lord, help me. Heavenly Father, we thank, thank you for this uh, illustration, this encounter with this woman, Jesus. We have known all these years and confirmed again that you save sinners. Lord, if there is any here today who has not cried out in mercy, we pray that they will seek out that Savior today and bless our time in the rest of our services this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.